Hello, this is Into the Greenwood. I'm Rosie. And I'm Kathy. And today we're doing a story called The Grey Wolf, written by George MacDonald. Um, yeah. Sometime in the mid-late 1800s. It's, it's very gothic, and we talk about kind of themes of desire and curse-breaking and... Um, generally discuss more of the tale itself because um, this one I think is an original story by George um, mm -hmm. but um, so we don't have other versions to talk about it's more of an in-depth analysis of this specific one and so the version that we have to read out is his version by him the only version the original <laughs> and he writes very nicely, so that's why we decided to do that too. <laughs> we hope you enjoy. One evening twilight in spring, a young English student who had wandered northwards as far as the outlying fragments of Scotland called the Orkney and Shetland Isles, found himself on a small island of the latter group, caught in a storm of wind and hail which had come on suddenly. It was in vain to look about for any shelter, for not only did the storm entirely obscure the landscape, but there was nothing around him save a desert moss. At length, however, as he walked on for mere walking's sake, he found himself on the verge of a cliff, and saw over the brow of it, a few feet below him, a ledge of rock where he might find some shelter from the blast which blew from behind. Letting himself down by his hands, he alighted upon something that crunched beneath his tread, and found the bones of many small animals scattered about in front of a little cave in the rock, offering the refuge he sought. He went in and sat upon a stone. The storm increased in violence, and as the darkness grew he became uneasy for he did not relish the thought of spending the night in the cave. He had parted from his companions on the opposite side of the island, and it added to his uneasiness that they must be full of apprehension about him. At last there came a lull in the storm, and the same instant he heard a footfall, stealthy and light as that of a wild beast, upon the bones at the mouth of the cave. He started up in some fear, for the least thought might have satisfied him that there could be no very dangerous animals upon the island. Before he had time to think, however, the face of a woman appeared in the opening. Eagerly the wanderer spoke. She started at the sound of his voice. He could not see her well, because she was turned towards the darkness of the cave. Will you tell me how to find my way across the moor to Shilness? he asked. You cannot find it tonight, she answered, in a sweet tone, and with a smile that bewitched him, revealing the whitest of teeth. What am I to do then? he asked. My mother will give you shelter, but that is all she has to offer. And that is far more than I expected a minute ago, he replied. I shall be most grateful. She turned in silence and left the cave. The youth followed. She was barefooted, and her pretty brown feet went cat-like over the sharp stones as she led the way down a rocky path to the shore. Her garments were scanty and torn, and her hair blew tangled in the wind. She seemed about five and twenty, lithe and small. Her long fingers kept clutching and pulling nervously at her skirts as she went. Her face was very grey in complexion and very worn, but delicately formed and smooth-skinned. Her thin nostrils were tremulous as eyelids, and her lips, whose curves were faultless, had no colour to give sign of indwelling blood. What her eyes were like he could not see, for she had never lifted the delicate films of her eyelids. At the foot of the cliff they came upon a little hut leaning against it, and having for its inner apartment a natural hollow within it. Smoke was spreading over the face of the rock, and the grateful odour of food gave hope to the hungry student. His guide opened the door of the cottage. He followed her in and saw a woman bending over a fire in the middle of the floor. On the fire lay a large fish boiling. The daughter spoke a few words, and the mother turned and welcomed the stranger. She had an old and very wrinkled but honest face, and looked troubled. She dusted the only chair in the cottage, and placed it for him by the side of the fire, 
opposite the one window, whence he saw a little patch of yellow sand over which the spent waves spread themselves out listlessly. Under this window there was a bench, upon which the daughter threw herself in an unusual posture, resting her chin upon her hand. A moment after, the youth caught the first glimpse of her blue eyes. They were fixed upon him with a strange look of greed, amounting to craving, but as if aware that they belied or betrayed her, she dropped them instantly. The moment she veiled them, her face, notwithstanding its colourless complexion, was almost beautiful. When the fish was ready, the old woman wiped the deal table, steadied it upon the uneven floor, and covered it with a piece of fine table linen. She then laid the fish on the wooden platter and invited the guest to help himself. Seeing no other provision, he pulled from his pocket a hunting knife and divided a portion from the fish, offering it to the mother first. Come, my lamb, said the old woman, and the daughter approached the table, but her nostrils and mouth quivered with disgust. The next moment she turned and hurried from the hut. She doesn't like fish, said the old woman, and I haven't anything else to give her. She does not seem in good health, he rejoined. The woman answered only with a sigh, and they ate their fish with the help of a little rye bread. As they finished their supper, the youth heard a sound like the pattering of a dog's feet upon the sand close to the door. But ere he had time to look out the window, the door opened and the young woman entered. She looked better, perhaps from having just washed her face. She drew a stool to the corner of the fire opposite him, but as she sat down to his bewilderment and even horror, the student spied a single drop of blood on her white skin within her torn dress. The woman brought out a jar of whiskey, put a rusty old kettle on the fire, and took her place in front of it. As soon as the water boiled, she proceeded to make some toddy in a wooden bowl. Meantime, the youth could not take his eyes off the young woman, so that at length he found himself fascinated, or rather bewitched. She kept her eyes for the most part veiled, with the loveliest eyelids fringed with darkest lashes and he gazed entranced, for the red glow of the little oil lamp covered all the strangeness of her complexion. But as soon as he met a stolen glance out of those eyes unveiled, his soul shuddered within him. Lovely face and craving eyes alternated fascination and repulsion. The mother placed the bowl in his hands. He drank sparingly and passed it to the girl. She lifted it to her lips, and as she tasted, only tasted it, looked at him. He thought the drink must have been drugged and have affected his brain. Her hair smoothed itself back and drew her forehead backwards with it, while the lower part of her face projected towards the bowl, revealing, ere she sipped, her dazzling teeth in strange prominence. But the same moment the vision vanished, she returned the vessel to her mother and, rising, hurried out of the cottage. Then the old woman pointed to a bed of heather in one corner with a murmured apology, and the student wearied both with the fatigues of the day and the strangeness of the night, threw himself upon it, wrapped in his cloak. The moment he lay down, the storm began afresh, and the wind blew so keenly through the crannies of the hut that it was only by drawing his cloak over his head that he could protect himself from its currents. Unable to sleep, he lay listening to the uproar which grew in violence, till the spray was dashing against the window. At length the door opened and the young woman came in, made up the fire, drew the bench before it, and lay down in the same strange posture, with her chin propped on her hand and elbow, and her face turned towards the youth. He moved a little. She dropped her head and lay on her face, with her arms crossed beneath her forehead. The mother had disappeared. A movement of the bench roused him, and he fancied he saw some four-footed creature as tall as a large dog trot quietly out of the door. He was sure he felt a rush of cold wind. Gazing fixedly through the darkness, he thought he saw the eyes of the damsel encountering his, but a glow from the falling together of the remnants of the fire revealed clearly enough that the bench was vacant. Wondering what could have made her go out in such a storm, he fell fast asleep. In the middle of the night he felt a pain in his shoulder, came broad awake and saw the gleaming eyes and grinning teeth of some animal close to his face. Its claws were in his shoulder and its mouth in the act of seeking his throat. Before it had fixed its fangs, however, he had its throat in one hand and sought his knife with the other. A terrible struggle followed, but regardless of the tearing claws, he found and opened his knife. He had made one futile stab and was drawing it for a surer, 
when, with a spring of the whole body and one wildly contorted effort, the creature twisted its neck from his hold, and with something betwixt a scream and a howl, darted from him. Again he heard the door open, again the wind blew in upon him, and it continued blowing. A sheet of spray dashed across the floor and over his face. He sprung from his couch and bounded to the door. It was a wild night, dark but for the flash of whiteness from the waves as they broke within a few yards of the cottage. The wind was raving and the rain pouring down the air. A gruesome sound as of mingled weeping and howling came from somewhere in the dark. He turned again into the hut and closed the door, but could find no way of securing it. The lamp was nearly out and he could not be certain whether the form of the young woman was upon the bench or not. Overcoming a strong repugnance, he approached it and put out his hands. There was nothing there. He sat down and waited for the daylight. He dared not sleep any more. When the day dawned at length, he went out yet again and looked around. The morning was dim and gusty and grey. The wind had fallen, but the waves were tossing wildly. He wandered up and down the little strand, longing for more light. At length he heard a movement in the cottage. By and by, the voice of the old woman called him from the door. "'You're up early, sir. I suppose you didn't sleep well?' "'Not very well,' he answered. "'But where is your daughter?' "'She's not awake yet,' said the mother. "'I'm afraid I have but a poor breakfast for you. "'But you'll take a dram and a bit of fish. It's all I've got.' Unwilling to hurt her, though hardly in good appetite, he sat down at the table. While they were eating, the daughter came in, but turned her face away and went to the further end of the hut. When she came forward after a minute or two, the youth saw that her hair was drenched and her face whiter than before. She looked ill and faint, and when she raised her eyes, all their fierceness had vanished and sadness had taken its place. Her neck was now covered with a cotton handkerchief. She was modestly attentive to him and no longer shunned his gaze. He was gradually yielding to the temptation of braving another night in the hut, and seeing what would follow, when the old woman spoke. "'The weather will be broken all day, sir,' she said. "'You'd better be going, or your friends will leave without you.' Ere he could answer, he saw such a beseeching glance on the face of the girl that he hesitated, confused. Glancing at the mother, he saw the flash of wrath in her face. She rose and approached her daughter, with her hand lifted to strike her. The young woman stooped her head with a cry. He darted round the table to interpose between them. But the mother had caught hold of her, the handkerchief had fallen from her neck, and the youth saw five bruises on her lovely throat, the marks of the four fingers and the thumb of the left hand. With a cry of horror, he darted from the house, but as he reached the door, he turned. His hostess was lying motionless on the floor, and a huge grey wolf came bounding after him. There was no weapon at hand, and if there had been, his inborn chivalry would never have allowed him to harm a woman, even under the guise of a wolf. Instinctively, he set himself firm, leaning a little forward, with half-outstretched arms, and hands curved, ready to clutch again at the throat upon which he had left those pitiful marks. But the creature, as she sprung, eluded his grasp, and just as he expected to feel her fangs, he found a woman weeping on his bosom, with her arms around his neck. The next instant the grey wolf broke from him and bounded howling up the cliff. Recovering himself as he best might, the youth followed, for it was the only way to the moor above, across which he must now make his way to find his companions. All at once he heard the sound of a crunching of bones, not as if a creature was eating them, but as if they were being ground by the teeth of rage and disappointment. Looking up, he saw close above him the mouth of the little cavern in which he had taken refuge the day before. Summoning all his resolution, he passed it slowly and softly. From within came the sounds of a mingled moaning and growling. Having reached the top, he ran at full speed for some distance across the moor before venturing to look behind him. When at length he did so, he saw against the sky the girl standing on the edge of the cliff, wringing her hands. One solitary wail crossed the space between. She made no attempt to follow him, and he reached the opposite shore in safety. So, in a few words, as few as possible, how do you feel about this story? Very atmospheric. Um, mm. It is. Big fan of 
our man George that wrote it. Um, this is the only thing of his that I've read, but I'm a big fan now, I've decided. It feels surprisingly atypical. It does. Mm. It definitely does. And I feel like... So I have I have some facts about, um, about the author, just some fun facts. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of those go to kind of explaining why it's quite atypical. Yes. Um, so... George MacDonald. He was a Scottish poet, author, and Christian minister. He was born in 1824 and is considered a pioneering figure in fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. Um, He mentored Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, and his writings are thought to have influenced like Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Neil Gaiman, Mm -hmm. and like a lot more famous people. and he's kind of he has been described by some people as the founding father of modern fantasy, but obviously loads of people get described as that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he's apparently he's known for using fantasy as and fantasy writing as a way to explore the human condition. Mm-hmm. So I feel like part of why this story feels so atypical is because I think it has this lens of the author very deliberately taking the world of folklore and specifically applying it to, you know, explore the human condition. (laughs) Yeah, I think generally that's the purpose of folklore in a way, but it tends to be you know, you have archetypes, so it's it's less specific. Um, the characters yeah. aren't supposed to be real people in a way. They're not supposed to have that in a complexity. It's more the tale itself yeah. that has that. This story itself, each of the people are very, very complex. It's a much more modern folktale. Yeah. Um, it feels yeah. like a novel. Um, yeah. more than a Cinderella I, story or something, for example. Exactly. And I think like what we kind of get with most folklore, because it has developed over many, many, many years through lots and lots and lots of people, it naturally begins to like reflect something that resonates within all of us, because otherwise mm-hmm. it wouldn't have survive to to pass around so many people um but i feel like this story is a much more you know to me it feels like he is thinking i want to specifically explore and reflect on a certain topic and i guess he's putting the reflection and the human condition part of the story first and then the kind of folklore aspects come after as opposed to more traditional folklore where it's like the folklore develops and naturally reflects us you know yes yeah natural folklore um it kind of it simplifies things because like you say it has to resonate with everyone so yeah. you you don't have intentions and thoughts and feelings very much. You have actions because everyone's then able to put their own colouring into the story um, in their yeah. ways of telling it and ways of describing it. Yeah. It's very much not the case with this one because, like you say, he's an author doing something on purpose. Uh in a way that the yeah. nebulous development of folklore just does not allow for. Yeah. So, I have, I have a take mm-hmm. on this on this story about what I think that it's all about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm not claiming that the author really did this deliberately, but um, and and I just I hate to be the person to suggest this. <laughs> Because oh, no. I feel like it's really overdone. Okay. Um, but I think this story is about sex. 
groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> Do tell. Um. <laughs> so it kind of, for me, this kind of interpretation starts off with the fact that he obviously finds her pretty and attractive. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and so she's described as looking at him with a kind of hunger all the time. Yep. And, and it's very easy to blur that into kind of lust, basically. Yes. Um, they're they're basically always like using hunger as a descriptor for those is like super common. Mm -hmm. um, so. Kind of, I've kind of written my notes out as like a long rambling uh, stream, so mm. let me let me just fumble my way through this. Go um, ahead. Yeah. So she kind of when she attacks him in the middle of the night, it's in the shape of the wolf, which seems to represent the expression of a kind of uncontrollable feeling, like desire or or lust and it's in the middle of the night which kind of naturally has mm -hmm. those kind of connotations and then I'm pretty I eek like I'm kind of grossed out or put off by the fact that they have this so he finds her attractive mm -hmm. and is both unnerved and intrigued by this look of hunger in her eyes she comes to him in the middle of the night, they have this encounter, and in this encounter he ultimately triumphs and dominates her and wins, I guess, the encounter. And the next day she's described as being attentive to his needs and no longer shunning him, as if whatever happened during the night has somehow cowed her and made her into more like a wife material so then like and then there's this kind of weird thing going on where I feel like there's something about lustful seductive women the fact that she's looking at him with hunger this is off-putting and weird and the fact that she comes to him but then she's kind of ultimately tamed by the fact that he dominated that encounter and prevailed over her and I kind of hate it mm -hmm. and then and then when he leaves she's upset in a way that feels weird and mysterious unless you imagine it as if they're an un they're unmarried she's worried that she's pregnant and he's now leaving her and there's nothing she can do about it and her behavior if you think of it like that seems a lot more logical the way she's like weeping in his arms and the wolf is like fighting to get out of her and, and then and then she's running away and then she's just watching him anxiously wringing his hands her hands as as mm -hmm. he leaves like it's just got this real vibe and then reading it in that way there's this weird power exchange that happens after she attacks him in the night and they have this encounter um, where if you're reading it through the lens of this is a story about like desire it's like before sex the women have the power because they're desirable and they they have what um, men want or whatever and then afterwards the man has the power and she's suddenly acting subservient because now he has what she wants, which is potential support and protection for a possible child that she might be carrying. Like, it has that kind of vibe of it to me. And, like, there's this mix of, like, danger and desire and the idea that, like, monstrous desire is, like, something that consumes the object of it. And... Mm that kind of thing and there's all these previous bones in her cave about like I don't know men she's possibly eaten before I mean <laughs> I didn't assume they were human bones I assumed they might be animal bones but like still mm. um and there's also 
the way that um, her mother reacts to realizing that she must have attacked him during the night. Yep. It's still, it's vague enough that you can be like, you can see it as the mother is disappointed she let the wolf out and attacked this man, or the mother is disappointed that she, um, like an unmarried maiden, maybe slept with this man. Mm -hmm. And in both ways, like, the mother feels betrayed by her actions. And there's just, there's a lot of parallels and there's a lot of, like, ambiguity and I think it's there's less ambiguity if you take it just from the male character's point of view but then you kind of question maybe he's an unreliable narrator and he's just like mm -hmm. yeah this like lustful feral woman totally she threw herself at me and Obviously, I couldn't stay with her. I had to leave her because she's a terrible, dangerous creature. Like, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I just, I hate it very much, but it, it does, it does fit, and um, I also, not to be chronically online. But um, <laughs> I also wanted to compare it to Dracula a little bit because... Oh, I'm so glad so. because I wanted to do that too. <laughs> yeah. So the thing about Dracula that I wanted to bring up with regards to this specific reading of the story um, is that there are some theories that um, Bram Stoker, the writer of Dracula, was attracted to men and his representation of Dracula... Um, shows that he finds those feelings monstrous and predatory um, like and he's he's like got a lot of like all the sort of commentary I've seen on it is that people find his books quite homophobic and but there's enough there to suggest that this is something he's kind of grappling with within himself so there's this same kind of thing where it's like the demonization of a certain type of desire and the viewing the person who exhibits that desire as wanting to consume you, I guess. And furthermore, there's kind of like, there's a scene where the main character or one of the main characters in Dracula, Jonathan is kind of accosted by these three female vampires who he finds mm -hmm. attractive, and um, they also try to bite his neck, the same as the the wolf girl does. And Jonathan at the time is kind of in a, like, daze of desire because of magic-y vampire reasons. And mm -hmm. at the time he wants them to do it, and then afterwards he's like, well, that was weird. Um, yeah, he's uh, horrified with himself, yeah. Yeah, but not long after that, he describes them to himself as women, and then he decides that they're too evil and monstrous to be called women. And I feel like, in a sense, in a more metaphorical sense, in both of these stories, there's a bit of a demonization of women's desire and of women who openly pursue or seduce men. And that being seen as, like, an inherently not feminine, not womanly quality. Um, but also those female vampires in Dracula, they eat babies, so that might be this is also the part thing. of it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the problem with folklore and magic and fantasy stories generally, in that any parallel or magical substitute you immediately think, okay, I mean, but the thing, this desire actually is inherently more dangerous than normal human desire. Like, yeah. it's, of course, it's going to be demonized. It has to be for the story um, and just for like logical reasons. Like you say, they eat babies. Um, they they eat want babies. to eat him. Uh, yeah. 
which you know in and of itself there's like um yes you can say that not to get stuck on talking about dracula for too long but um, that's true the the vampires in dracula it's at that point in the story it comes across as the ultimate perversion of womanhood is to destroy a baby instead of making one and the mm -hmm. ultimate perversion of manhood is to be interested and possibly a little bit attracted to there's some strange subtext that is pretty ambiguous but it goes either way mm -hmm. for for a man it, the per ultimate perversion is to be attracted to other men um in a lot of senses that feels like what is happening in Dracula but yeah <laughs> they mm -hmm. also they also eat babies <laughs> they also eat babies yeah and um it's very clear that vampires and werewolves typically both represent an uncontrolled desire yeah um, that it's all that kind of it's kind of impulsive consume yeah, consuming aspect that you've already yeah. picked up on it's definitely it's definitely about fearing an internal more instinctive more animal part of yourself and being afraid of not being able to control it being afraid of um what happens when that part of you comes out yes and it's interesting that both dracula and this story they're written from the perspective of essentially the male passive victim we'll say yeah um yeah. and then that adds the layer that i think everyone resonates with of okay well what if i can control my desire but you can't control yours um yeah. then what that's a much more dangerous position to be in potentially that's that take that's that <laughs> but take. i also wanted to note as an aside mm -hmm. i really like that she's described as being 25 and not 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. absolutely really nice. me too yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's. It's a very layered tale. Um, I I think the take that you have mentioned very much fits. I can see why it would strike you. Um, because yeah, it's absolutely about desire. We're very clearly saying he finds her attractive. But she has this power that gives her complete control over things and she eats them and yeah. you just have bones left. Um, yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of places where the writer is intentionally muddying the waters between um, desire and repulsion and yes. hunger and other hunger and lust, I suppose. Yes, and he's absolutely enthralled by her. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I've just scrolled down the alternated fascination and repulsion. You know, that's that's in the text. Um, yeah, I'm curious about the mother's position in this. If we ignore the werewolf bit, um, you know, and yeah. we, we just say this is simply desire, essentially, and she doesn't actually become a wolf, she's just expressing herself more animalistically. Um, yeah. Then the question is, what is the mother doing? Why does she disappear from the hut? Um, yeah. Where is she when all of this is going on? Mm -hmm. Why does she seem to know, but also not know what's likely to happen? You know, she, she seems to be quite sorry that the man is there in a way. 
I guess there's two ways. You can read it as mm -hmm. if the mother maybe has hopes that, like, young men who visit... Will eventually um, marry her. Will eventually marry her and she will be mm -hmm. able to, like, contain herself for long enough that they don't realise the monster within her. Yeah. Um, and then the other reading is that... The mother, that that attempt during the night was actually a failed attempt. He threw off her. I mean, it was a failed attempt to eat him. <laughs> yeah. But like, you could also see it as a failed attempt to seduce him, and the mother perhaps was actually. You could also see it as the mother. She's unable to ma get this daughter married, and she would rather. The daughter, the daughter, like get herself pregnant and sure, force she's a man, angry at the disappointment. Stay. Yes, yeah, um, because there's clearly some tension that already exists between the mother and the daughter. Um, I feel like the implication when the mother goes up to strike the daughter that mm. this young woman just stands back and accepts it. I feel like the implication is this is a an accepted part of the way that they interact yeah um it's not a shock to this young woman that yeah the mother is going to strike her yeah so it, it does seem like it's either she's angry at the fact that the daughter has let this side of herself show at all or that she's let it show and it's failed. And it didn't even work. Mm -hmm. There's kind, there's um sort of folklore, supposed folklore, in Shetland about werewolf type creatures called wolver, where it's the body of a man and the head of a wolf. And I noticed specifically this tale is set in Shetland. So. Part, partly I was like, is, mm. is it connected? Is it yes. connected to that? Um, but there there are claims that the wolver is not a real piece of Shetland folklore. Um, and basically the whole thing was kind of a misunderstanding by the folklorist who originally wrote mm -hmm. about them, Jesse Saxby. Um, it's thought that Saxby didn't understand that the word wolver mm -hmm. was derived from the Old Norse word for fairy and sort of accidentally created wolvers as a part of Shetland folklore um, when they had never actually existed and I did see I did see a claim from just kind of one one person from Shetland who was kind of having who, who was kind of griping about this. So like not really an official source, but this person claimed that that the Wolvers were invented in like 1930, and that the yeah. the um, staff at Shetland's museums are constantly having to tell people that it's not actually a part of Shetland folklore and no one ever or does believe in them um so yeah i can't really substantiate that that comment but i just kind of thought oh well if it's mm -hmm. someone from shetland claiming this then okay this writer is deliberately basing this in shetland it seems like it seems like he must have been inspired about about wolver stories but i'm also not sure if this supposed creation of the Wolver folklore is after this story is published or not. I'm not sure. But, yeah. Yeah, I I don't know how relevant this is necessarily. But, um, I believe that Frankenstein, the wife is murdered when they're up in the Shetland Islands, I think, um, up on the honeymoon. And it's not 
you know, Frankenstein is, is then kind of another step apart to a degree. But it's also another story about the perils of desire. Yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose it could just be... Not fulfilling. Um, the fact that the Shetland Isles are so remote. That it, it's kind of being used. Yeah. Almost like people... Um, Almost in the way that people use like the phrase phrase like Timbuktu to be like it's it's just this far flung mm -hmm. place away from what would we what we would consider a civilization and it's where wild things like this happen. Yes, um, it's where the wild things are, and then you come back and you try not to think about the things that you saw and experienced and maybe even did um, over there if you can avoid it. It's there a little bit. I was trying to look out for signs in this story because it was just kind of on my brain. I was like, I wonder if this kind of thing is going to be a theme mm -hmm. here. Um, any signs of the main character taking on the attributes of the monster and kind of becoming corrupted by this and becoming more monstrous himself? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's strongly there. But I think the moment of horror when he sees his finger marks on her throat, mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that going on, the idea that he himself has been forced to become violent and the idea of like marking a woman like that is appalling to him. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a little bit there, but the fact that he's still so appalled by it and then he also just kind of escapes and leaves, it's, it's not a super strong theme, I don't think. Yeah, no, but I think you can argue that it's there, um, because we even have um, that his uh, his inborn chivalry wouldn't allow him to harm her now that he knows that she's yeah. the one that becomes the wolf. Um, yeah, I suppose it's kind of more showing, it's showing us his choice is he can leave and retain his inborn chivalry mm -hmm. or he can stay here and he can allow himself to be corrupted by this wildness it, it's kind of suggesting that this this place is making him bad and this situation is making him bad and he can either stay and become bad he can stay and die, mm -hmm. or he can leave. <laughs> yeah, or he can leave. Um, and it's interesting because he does have the temptation to stay another day um, mm -hmm. until the mother sends him away, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely some space for that. I was, um, I have to admit, my take was less intense i'd been considering this very much I, like okay well what are we trying to say if she actually is potentially a werewolf um you know still desire it's like i'm just gonna ignore the potential sexual aspect for a bit um it's there yeah we can it's a valid take I think it's it's good. It's fair enough. But I was I was curious about how to not spend forever there if we could avoid it. So yeah. Um, then I was trying to think a little bit about almost Beauty and the Beast stories, if you will. Um, yeah. So this person for whatever reason is cursed to give in to their worst impulses as represented by transformation to an animal and unsafe for our hero yeah. heroine to be around until redemption of love marriage happily ever after yeah. um so that being the case um i was also thinking about what you're saying of the isolation of it being up in the Shetland Islands and that not only is it there he's also isolated himself from his friends um, he's he's walked off a, yeah. a way away into the distance and 
it's only very much within the bounds of this hut and this cave that he mm-hmm. is around this dangerous environment. Um, very specifically, she doesn't chase him afterwards. Um, he does have to chase her out and away from the hut as if there's only one route to escape by. Um, so I was considering it as, um, a failed curse-breaking story, if you will, um, because we, when we did the Black Bull of Norway, there's then other tales that are a bit like that, where you have the animalistic bride or bridegroom and their lover fails to and they get parted and then they have to work to reunite themselves that's not exactly what's happening here and the story is too gothic to even want to have that resolution i think this is this tale is supposed to end sadly and with them splitting Absolutely. But if you told it in a different way and you added a second half of the story um, in which, you know, to to take some aspects from yours, uh, maybe she is pregnant and the child is the thing that reunites them in a slightly um, old-timey Rapunzel, uh, you know, the, the ones that you don't hear in which the yeah. prince leaves her pregnant and things like that. Um, yeah. Those more complicated and less uh, reassuring folktales. This could, yeah. with enough time, maybe morph into that if we wanted to. So I'd been thinking of it yeah. potentially like that, and then if you if that's the reading that you take of a failed curse break, then you can think, oh, well, maybe the old woman is the one that cursed her, for example, um, and mm. things like that. So yeah. it's, I think your take is more psychologically interesting, but I was wondering mm. how to make it map onto some of the other folk tales that we've considered and why yeah. it doesn't fit that pattern. Yeah, I think you can kind of see a combination of both takes mm-hmm. in, you know, if we're if we're ignoring, if we just ignore the idea of the wolf being a metaphor, um, you can kind of see a combination of both takes where, like, yeah, this is an attempt to break the curse and um the the mother is annoyed and disappointed with her that she has failed to seduce him in a normal way and instead has tried to eat him <laughs> mm-hmm. and she's just like well you're like, he's not well, gonna break yeah, your curse you now just, girl you can't just try to eat people um and hope that they help you <laughs> that would be bad um mm-hmm. yeah it's um I hadn't really fully formulated this as a an idea. Um, I had just done a bit of light reading and and considering um, how we could answer some of the questions in a different way. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, it's um it's always upsetting because I feel. I feel that um, reading fairy tales as a metaphor for sex is very overdone and very boring. Mm-hmm. So it's sometimes extremely annoying when it actually fits really well. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, um, yeah, it's it's but, a um, very large driving part of our lives. Um, it makes sense that we will use lots of stories to explore it and consider it in different ways and. Yeah. have a space to consider and it. I, Go on. I can definitely see with this story how it has a much more deliberate mm. 
examination of the human condition, yes. like we were saying before. I can kind of even see that the author has deliberately decided to write a fairy tale that's like kind of about about desire. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe not. Maybe it's subconscious and he didn't mean for this to happen, but it has a little bit, so um, I, thanks for that. <laughs> I think it maps too neatly for it to be a coincidence. You know? Yeah. Um, like you see yeah. it. There, mm -hmm. There's just, like we said before, there's places where the mingling of the two ideas is, is too deliberate. It's very deliberate. And the undercurrent of it the attack happening in the middle of the middle of the night in a secluded place while he's lying on his bed. It, yeah, there are more than enough implications. And certainly, if he was a woman and she was a man, you wouldn't have any doubt about what this was implying um, and could be a metaphor yeah. for. This is something I haven't given much, much thought to um, at all. I'm just going to spring this on okay. us. But, um, so any thoughts about this versus Red Riding Hood? Mm -hmm. You know, I had been um, thinking about this as well, especially the um, huge amount of modern takes in which, oh, it's actually Red White Riding Hood, who's the wolf. Oh, I'm so cool and smart. What what brought that to mind? That's, I'm going to throw the ball back to you so that I have time to think. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I suppose um, what brought it to mind? And I'm not necessarily I'm not really a huge fan of these interpretations mm. of Red Riding Hood, but what brought it to mind is the really popular interpretation of Red Riding Hood, where it's about a young girl coming into her womanhood for the first time and having to deal with predatory mm -hmm. men. So I guess that undertone versus I guess that possible undertone to Red, Red Riding Hood, which is a pretty, pretty widely accepted reading, um, but with Red Riding Hood, I, I feel like there's enough um, stuff happening that you can read it how you want to, um, versus this story where it's much more, this is what it's it feels like this is what it's about. Mm -hmm. So you, if you're looking at Red Riding Hood mm -hmm. in that way, and you think you're going to invert the genders so that it's a young man and a, like, slightly predatory or very, um, just forward woman, I suppose. Um, if you're going to invert the genders like that, it's then like an, another easy leap to think, oh, well, like Red Riding Hood, she goes to this suppo supposed place of mm -hmm. safety. You know, it's like she's in the wilderness, she meets the wolf. He's in the wilderness, he meets the wolf. She goes to the place of safety, the wolf is there in yes. disguise. He goes to the place of safety, the wolf mm -hmm. is there in disguise. And it's just a very easy leap to be to think of it as, well, what if, what if when she meets Red Riding Hood meets the wolf in the forest, she doesn't know it's the yes. wolf. And in some ways, that's already there in Red Riding Hood because she knows it's a wolf, but she doesn't know that it's a scary wolf. I think she gives it flowers or something, and she's just like, hey. Yeah, definitely the first time, she doesn't seem to understand what the wolf is even just from a, a wolf could eat a young girl and eat without any kind of sexual undertones i mean and then i can definitely see an author 
or a writer thinking, you know, I want to write this story of a wolf in disguise, but actually make it something more supernatural and less sort of silly sounding. Like it's not a wolf <laughs> wearing a nighty. Mm -hmm. It's someone who can actually change between the two forms. Yes, and I think he was quite interested in novels and fairy tales anyway, from what I remember of reading about him. Um, so yeah. he was presumably familiar with Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, it, it's the bit when the the girl drinks from the water and it says um, he he thinks that the drink might have been drugged and have, mm. and have affected his brain. Her hair smoothed itself back and drew her forehead backwards mm. with it mm -hmm. while the lower part of her face projected towards the bowl, revealing ere she sipped her dazzling teeth in strange prominence. Um, that has a little echo of how sharp your it teeth are. It very much does. How big your nose yes, is. Yes, I thought that bit of the tale was very strange. I had lots of questions. Yeah. And if you actually try to imagine that bit in full detail, it's very horrifying. Yes, I, uh, this whole tale is very gothic. It's quite uncomfortable. Uh, it's very happy mm -hmm. to have the interplay of violence and desire and body horror. Um, yeah. Which is not the traditional feeling of yeah. a folktale. Um, but I'm enjoying it. Mm -hmm. um, Unless you look at it through the kind of metaphor of desire, the ending's very weird. Because it, it's just like, why can't she just still try mm -hmm. to eat him? I, I don't know why she would just cry and sadly watch him. Because um, she had him. She was like on top of him, but then she's just sort of weeping in his yeah. arms instead. Um, and that does read a lot more like she's begging him not to leave after whatever has transpired between them. Yes, it only makes sense. She, there's also certainly an implication that she's killed the mother, um, which yes. only makes sense. It, the mother sends him away, and then we have the next piece of violence, and then, yeah, implication that she's killed the mother, and then chases after him, and then cries. So... You can mm -hmm. easily argue that there's this desperation and betrayal in the heart of the young woman who mm -hmm. has seduced this man potentially, but he's now leaving, and his mother is uh, her mother is helping him leave, um, mm -hmm. and she doesn't want any of that to happen, um, but doesn't know how to stop it. So again, just reacts in a yeah. um, a violent, animalistic way. And, and if we read it more in the kind of lens of her trying to cure her own mm -hmm. curse, you can also read it in the sense where um, she kind of wasn't exactly trying to eat him she just lost control for mm. that moment and she doesn't want to eat him and she's just grieving the fact that she lost control and showed a portion of her true self that she can't take back and now he will never accept her because he's seen it now mm -hmm. i do feel very sorry for her it's very Me sad too. Her. i was thinking the same thing it's quite a haunting tale, actually. Um, especially with the ending, just that she's howling and wailing um, uh, on the top of yeah. the cliff, watching him leave. Um, 
It could it could have been very straightforward. It could have been um, a story about a guy who seeks shelter and <gasps> one of the people is actually a wolf, but then he narrowly escapes with his life and they try to eat him, but he gets away. Um, but instead, she's made into a very tragic figure. Yes, it makes me, uh, you know, the, the comparison of how much we can argue that this is vilifying women's desire. There's a tale of these, um, I don't know what they are, just, just a group of men, I think, who are out hunting. They bump into these women who invite them to, to spend the night in their nice hut, and they're basically Scottish vampires, I think. And all of the men are eaten apart from one of them who stays loyal to his wife and doesn't let himself be seduced and stabs them with some, mm. a piece of iron or something and gets away. Um, those stories very clearly have no sympathy for the supernatural, um, or not if it's a metaphor, women that are seducing men in, out in the wilds. Yeah. Um, yeah. This story clearly is yeah. not doing that. Yeah, that's the thing, is that it's definitely presenting some notions about how we perceive men and women and desire and stuff. It's it's definitely presenting some notions about that that I find troubling, but I don't feel like the story itself, or the writer I suppose, hates no. women. It more feels like a commentary on just the way things are, not necessarily the way they should be or the way that they truly are, but rather the way that society and culture interprets things, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sympathetic to her at all, really. Yeah, which um, the reading that I did of him, his theology particularly seems a lot more compassionate than some of the theology that you hear about from those times. Mm -hmm. um, he thought everyone um, would eventually repent and be saved. Basically, that's the long and short of it. So inherently that's a very compassionate take of morality and it's very accepting of mistake um, and poorly yeah. controlled desire, uh, irrelevant to who it is. So that could definitely help explain how sympathetic this feels. It's a really, it is a really interesting story and I do really like mm -hmm. it and it doesn't, like it, although it tackles, it tackles attitudes, or one can interpret it as tackling <laughs> attitudes that I personally disagree with and don't like. But it's it's exploring those attitudes. It's not saying that these are um, that you know any of these characters are irredeemable mm. or not worthy of sympathy. Yeah, no one here deserves to be killed by a mob, um, which is how werewolf tales often yeah. end. Yeah, no one deserves to have their stomach like axed mm. open and have their like dinner pulled out yeah. or anything. Which is nice, we'll take the surprisingly sad but peaceful resolution. Um, it's a nice change. Closing thoughts, I like it a lot. All of the people are a lot more sympathetic and interesting yeah. than we often have the chance to discuss because generally archetypes don't have all, an awful lot going on below the surface. And I'm curious to read more of uh, Mr. George MacDonald's stories after this, actually. Same. I, I like it a lot. I like the sympathetic characters. I would honestly love a novel about this that goes goes really in depth mm -hmm. 
Yes, I want to just spend more time with it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would be lovely. Okay, um, so if there's any necromancers that might bring George back from the dead so he can turn this into a novel, um, <laughs> please do that. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, a charity that tells the tales of the past with the technology of today. Our aim is to make the compiling and sharing of folktales accessible through digital streams. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at folklorescotland.com. You can also check out all of our social media links in the show notes. If you would like to support the work we do, we have now launched a coffee page where you can make a small contribution that will go a long way in helping us carry out the work we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.